Good morning, my friend. Hope you're doing well. It is Friday morning, Friday conversation. I'm actually recording this on Thursday. Tata and I are sitting here having some coffee. It's day three of snowpocalypse here in Nebraska. We had a huge snowstorm we've been digging out of for a couple of days now. But I think sunshine's on the forecast for today. So I pray that you are safe and warm wherever you are. I have got some incredible guests coming up for Friday Conversations, but I don't have a new one today. Um, we took a couple weeks of a break to kind of get um, some stuff caught up and squared away. So today I'm bringing you back one of my all-time favorite conversations on the podcast. Back in June of 2021, Lisa and I had the chance to sit down via Zoom with Laura Berenger and Scott McKnight. Scott is Laura's dad. Um, Scott's a New Testament scholar. Uh, Laura's an educator. And they wrote a book that was a Christian Book Award finalist in the Christian Resource section in 2021. That's where I discovered it. A book called A Church Called Tove. It's about the toxic culture and church abuse and and just how we can rebuild our churches and our and even our own lives to be more like God. That the Hebrew word for good, which God has described as good, is tov, T-O-V. And it's just a wonderful kind of wide-ranging conversation about all these topics. I think it'll be of some great value to you. Um, really had a great time with Laura and Lisa and Scott that day. And so I wanted to bring, the, bring you back that today. Um, I think I scrubbed all the references, but if you hear a reference or a mention of a free book, those have been given away a long time ago, so there are no free book giveaways on this episode today. And like I said, I think I got rid of those mentions. But if you hear one, please don't write in. I don't have any more books, so you <laughs> you won't get a response. But um, this is a wonderful book. still holds up after two years. I think it's worth reading. It was one of my top five books for 2021. I'm so blessed by it. And it really changed the way I think about the church and church abuse and how we build cultures and, and how we put churches together and all those things. And I think it would be very helpful to you to check it out. It's always a pleasure to have Lisa on the show. And uh, we just had a great time. So I think um, you'll be blessed by bringing back A Church Called Tove with Scott McKnight and Laura Berenger. And as always, don't forget to start today. I am really excited today um, to bring you this episode. We have the the year 2020 was a tough year, but it also was an amazing year in that it brought us a lot of powerful books. And of course, we were recently incredibly honored to find out a couple of months ago that we were nominated. My book, I've seen the interview, was nominated for the biography and memoir section of uh, Book of the Year, the Christian Book of the Year. And we went on to win the, you know, the, the book went on to win the memoir category. Uh, book book of the year for Christian Book Awards um, last year, and when I found out about the awards, you know, we went to their website and found out all the the details about what was going on, and there was a whole web page, as I shared with you before, of the finalists. And I'd never been exposed to any of that before. Of course, never even imagined that I would be in the conversation for something like that. So we started. Lisa and I both started looking through the list of the other books that had won. There, you know, had been nominated, rather, I should say. And I'd read a couple of them. I'd read Craig Groeschel's Dangerous Prayers. And I'd read Dane Ortland's book, Gentle and Lowly, which I am amazed didn't win Book of the Year. That's an amazing book about the heart of Christ. And I just decided I was going to start reading some of those other books. And, and before I did, I thought, well, I wonder who won the whole thing the previous year. And there turned out to be Mark Rogep's book, Dark Clouds, Deep Mercy. And I introduced you to that recently because it was such a game-changing book about lament prayer and fell right into line with, with what I was writing in my new book now. And, of course, you had an opportunity to hear Mark a couple of weeks ago on the podcast. So I discovered Mark's work because of the Book of the Year nomination. I started just deciding that I was going to grab some of those books and read through them. And, 
you know, I really, again, you need to read Gentle and Lowly. I'm, I'm trying to figure out how to contact Dane Ortland. If you're listening, Dane, I want you to come on the show and talk about your book. Um, or if you know, hey, listener, if you know Dane Ortland somewhere out there, I would like to talk to him on the podcast because I want you to get to know Jesus in a way that Dane amazingly exposed us to in that book, Gentle and Lowly. It's just a, amazing, a fresh look at who Jesus is. But in reading through the list of the finalists, I can't, sort of came up short on a book I'd never, uh, I'd never heard of the title. It was called A Church Called Tove, T-O-V, A Church Called Tove, Forming a Goodness Culture That Resists Abuses of Power and Promotes Healing by Scott McKnight and Laura Berenger. And I thought, what in the world is Tove? I was just sort of struck by the title, so I just did that one-click Kindle thing and, and bought it, bought the Kindle version. And then I went on to read the description. I, I sort of reflex bought it because I liked the title and was intrigued by it. And I trusted the, you know, the judges and the people who who had decided that that book deserved to be a finalist in this category. So I thought, well, I'll just buy it and I'll read it. I put it in my pile. You know, I always got three or four books in the queue, right? And so, anyway, I went to Amazon and I read the preamble. And it kind of it kind of um, surprised me. Tragically, in recent years, Christians have gotten used to revelations of abuses on men, of many kinds in our most respected churches, from Willow Creek to Harvest, from Southern Baptist pastors to Sovereign Grace churches. Respected author and theologian Scott McKnight and former Willow Creek member Laura Berenger wrote this book to paint a pathway forward for the church. We need a better way. The sad truth is that churches of all shapes and sizes are susceptible to abuses of power, sexual abuse, and spiritual abuse. Abuses occur most frequently when Christians neglect to create a culture that resists abuse and promotes healing, safety, and spiritual growth. How do we keep those devastating events from repeating themselves? We need a map to get us there wherever, from where we are today to where we ought to be as the body of Christ. That map is in a mysterious and beautiful little Hebrew word in Scripture that we translate good, the word tov. In this book, McKnight and Beringer expose, explore the concept of Tove, unpacking its richness and how it can help Christians and churches rise up to fulfill their true calling as imitators of Jesus. I read that from Amazon, and I thought, I don't know if I really want to read a book of expose on church candles. That's what my initial thought was that this was going to be, is some you know, detail, deep dive into what happened at Willow Creek, which is interesting, and it's tragic. But I, I just sort of put it a little bit on the back burner. I wasn't sure I wanted to read it, but I'd spent the money, so I knew I'd get to it eventually. But then something interesting happened. Lisa and I have been having some conversations lately about church abuse, and I, and I brought it to you in an episode of the podcast a few weeks ago, or a few months ago, Plaid Pants Preachers. And Lisa and I both had personal and painful experience with church abuse. And then recently, especially on Twitter, there's a lot of controversy happening in the Southern Baptist Convention. There's been some, some really public um, arguments and, dis- and disruptions in that culture inside the SBC uh, to the point that prominent members like the famous writer Beth Moore and Russell Moore, who's no relation to Beth Moore, who was the president of the SBC's Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission, which is a big deal, they both recently left the SBC over some allegations of how the church has handled sexual abuse and some different arguments about different political things that are happening. And I'm not, uh, you know, I'm not a Baptist. So I don't know all the ins and outs of that, but but certainly it's been in been in the news and it's been public. And because of all that, it was this idea of church abuse and how churches handle scandal and all those things has been kind of in my mind recently. And so I thought, well, maybe I'll go back. And my spirit kept sort of nudging me back to this book, A Church Called Tove. So I, I went ahead and opened it on my Kindle, and I started with the foreword, which was written by somebody I'd never heard of. 
Tish Harrison Warren, and she's no relation to me either. We just have the same last name. And like Harvey and Lewis, when they see a bird when we're trying to take a walk, I got sidetracked and pulled off on a whole different path, and I looked up Tish Warren's name since I'd never heard of her, and we had the same last name, and I found her book, which was actually released in 2021 in January, and her book is called Prayer in the Night. And I ended up reading that book before I got too far into Tove because it's it, just like with Dark Clouds, Deep Mercy. It's about prayer and pain and how to deal with hard things. And it's relevant to what I'm writing right now. And again, Tish, if you're out there and you're listening, I want you on my show. I want to talk about your book. It's amazing. I'm going to go right on record here and say I think the 2022 Book Awards next year, I bet you anything, I'll bet you that Tish Harrison Warren's Prayer in the Night will be a contender for Book of the Year. This is a powerful book about prayer. It's a, it's a needed and desperate, desperately needed and powerful and important book about prayer, and you need to read it, Tish Warren's Prayer in the Night. Anyway, as an aside, let me say this about 2020. It was a tough year for all of us, but prior to 2020, God had put powerful books on the hearts of writers and publishers, and they headed in the pipeline to deliver us a steady stream of improvement books that will help your life. Books of powerful, important books that will change your heart and change your life. And there have been so many of them lately for me that they came out of the pain of 2020. And 2021's got some amazing books coming too, like Prayer in the Night. So, so I'm just encouraged how the Holy Spirit, knowing how long it takes to write and publish a book and how far ahead of 2020, God was giving writers these things to say. It's just, it's tender and loving and it's tov. It's good. It's a good thing about our God that he prepared us for the pandemic by having all these books in the pipeline. Well, anyway, I finally got around to reading Tove, and I was shocked to find that it's not at all, it's not an expose about Willow Creek. They avoided that temptation or, or that obvious easy path of just making it about Willow Creek. It's not that. It's a tender, careful look at our God's goodness about how by trying to live out our lives, emulating his tov, his essential character, his essential goodness, that Hebrew word tov, we can build our churches in a way that will avoid the kinds of things that happen when churches become pastor-centric or develop toxic cultures. But more importantly, it's just about how we need to be tov. We need to be good like God is good. It's an amazing book, a book churches ought to have, ought to read and give their search committees before they hire pastors. It's a book that we should all read if we want to learn how to be more like God or just understand who he is on a deeper level. And coincidentally, while I was reading it, and after I'd already convinced Lisa to read it too, one of the authors, Laura Berenger, tweeted a picture of herself reading my book. <laughs> That's actually how we connected with him. We chatted a little bit on Twitter, and I got to know her mom and dad, Kristen McKnight, and the co-author, Scott McKnight, via the magic of Twitter and Instagram. And after I finished Tove reading it, it occurred to me that this would be a great book to bring to you because I think it will help us all be more good like God. It'll help us have better churches and better cultures in our small groups and our families and our jobs. It's just a, a book that can change your heart. And so I reached out to Laura and Scott and invited them to they would come onto the show to talk about their book, and they graciously agreed to be with us today. Scott McKnight is a New Testament scholar who has written widely on the historical Jesus and Christian spirituality. He's a professor of New Testament at the Northern Seminary in Lombard, Illinois. He earned a bachelor's degree from Cornerstone University, a master's from Trinity Evangelical Divinity School, and a doctorate from the University of Nottingham. 
He has written, listen to this, he has written more than 80 books, including the popular Jesus Creed, which won an award from Christianity Today in 2004. You can read more from Scott at his blog, Jesus Creed. I'll put the links links in the show notes. And Laura Berenger, his daughter, is an outspoken advocate for the wounded resistors of institutional abuse. She previously co-authored the children's version of the Jesus Creed and wrote a teacher's guide to accompany the book. She published articles for the Jesus Creed and the Inglewood Review of Books, and her writing has been featured in Church Leaders and the Roy's Report. Laura is a graduate of Wheaton College and resides in the Chicago suburbs with her husband Mark and three beagles that they rescued. And I asked Lisa to join us for this discussion too, and I really think it's going to bless you. We had a great talk. We covered a lot of ground. We talked about church abuse, toxic cultures, and leadership, but we circled back, kept circling back to Tove, to God's goodness, to the goodness and kind heart of our good Father, And so before we get started today, I ask Scott to pray for us. Scott, would you pray, please? Father, we know that you are good, that you are kind, and that you have designed us to be good. And so we ask today that you would grant us a good conversation and that we would raise up before your people who listen uh, the call to goodness in the church that can be transformative and a witness to your grace. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Hey, friend, this is a great conversation about a great book. We're going to learn about the Hebrew word for good, tov, and we're going to start today. Hey, are you ready to change your life? If the answer is yes, there's only one rule. You have to change your mind first. And my friend, there's a place where the neuroscience of how your mind works smashes together with faith and everything starts to make sense. That place is called self-brain surgery. You can learn it, and it will help you become healthier, feel better, and be happier. And the good news is, you can start today. Thanks, Lisa. Hey, so glad to have you listening today. I'm Dr. Lee Warren, and I live in Nebraska in the United States of America with my incredible wife, Lisa, my father-in-law, Tata, and the super pups, Harvey and Lewis. I'm a neurosurgeon and an author, and I'm here to help you harness neuroscience, the power of your brain, faith, the power of your spirit, and good old common sense to help you lead a healthier, better, happier life. Listen, friend, you can't change your life until you change your mind, and I'm here to help you learn the art of self-brain surgery to get it done if you'd like the show. Please subscribe so you never miss an episode and tell your friends about it. If you tell two or three friends this podcast was helpful to you, imagine how much good we can all do around the world together. I'm Dr. Lee Warren, and I'm here to help you change your mind so you can change your life. Let's get after it. Well, friend, we're back, and I'm so excited that here with us today we have um, Scott and Laura, who have written uh this book, A Church Called Tove, that we've been talking about for a while now. And, um, of course, I've already introduced him to you, but just so grateful and honored to have you with us today with Lisa and I here. Um, Scott and Laura, welcome to the show. Thank you for having us. Good to be with you. Thank you. Absolutely. Now, how in the world did you come about to, now you're, just so we say it, your father and daughter, how did you come about writing a book together? Laura can answer this question. I was going to say, I know what my dad would say. He'd say, because Laura was a pest. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Well, I never envisioned myself being a part of writing the book. I actually wanted my dad to write it. And we had, when the Willow Creek story unfolded, we had countless, and I really mean countless, family conversations about what the church was saying, what the women were saying, and um, my dad, we, my husband and I would call my dad with all kinds of questions, theological questions about, 
you know, Willow said this about Matthew 18, and he would explain to us how he didn't feel that they were interpreting the Bible correctly. And one thing led to another, and um, we ended up proposing a book after he read. Why don't you tell them, Dad, about your the book that you read about the German yeah. churches? Well, I I was at, uh, early on, right after a couple blog posts that I wrote about Willow Creek. I was approached by a publisher to write a book about Willow Creek. Mm-hmm. I said, no, I said, I don't want to write a story about Willow Creek. I don't know the story well enough. I'm not a church historian, and they're not going to let me have access to the records. So I said, no. Well, then months later, I was reading a book on German pastors and their response to the Holocaust. Mm-hmm. And it was stunning how unable the German Lutheran pastors were to take responsibility for their complicity Mm. in the Holocaust. And they came up with all kinds of reasons. And it was it was uh, stunning back for me that the reasons they were giving were the identical reasons that Willow Creek was giving mm. for how it responded to the women. And then I we started noticing it in other churches as well, in all these accusations. You know, we have the Catholic churches, we have the Southern Baptist churches, we have people like C.J. Mahaney at Sovereign Grace, and we have James McDonald at Harvest in Chicago. We got all these stories, and they're all doing the same thing. And it was the same thing the German pastors were doing. So I I actually took notes on this. And then it was in, at Christmas time, Laura and Mark and Chris and I were together on vacation, and I said, uh, I have the makings of a book in that we it, it's the chapter called uh, the false narratives, and I said I I think I've come up with the patterns of how churches respond when allegations are laid against their leaders and the churches. So we started there, uh, and I and I said right away I wouldn't be interested in writing a book that was just an expose because most of, you know all the stories all but one of the stories in our, in our book are already public, right. and I said. Um, it would have to have a redemptive theme. And the redemptive theme was Tove, goodness. And so we let the book be framed by Tove. And in the book, we told we tell the stories, some of these stories that, that deserve to be exposed as, yeah. as illustrations to people who are Christians that this is what happens when God's people chooses not to be Tove. This is what happens. Toxicity. That's, right. so that's sort of... But and Laura edited. We, I had to, this is this is horrible. I, I feel like a betrayal of my <laughs> life. I had to use Google Docs with Laura instead of Microsoft Word, and it was just awful for me to do it that way. That's and a, uh, schism. And we went back and forth on, on Google Docs until finally we got close to the end. I said, "Okay, move it all to Microsoft Word, and we'll we'll do it in a proper." <laughs> a proper file now, a ta- uh, application, whatever it's called, program. And um, and we had a great time, but Laura was editing everything I wrote, and I edited everything she wrote, and she um, she found most of the stories, although I take credit for Mr. Rogers. I also take credit for the dedication to wounded resistors, but so does she. Yeah, we. it was really fun to write together. Um, but like, like my dad mentioned, it's not that I love Google Docs. I mean, I do love Google Suite, but 
when you're writing a book together, he would rather email the entire manuscript back and forth than just like both go to the doc to, to make our changes. So we, I still tease him about that. <laughs> this is why I love podcasting with conversational format because we never would have gotten to that story if I was just that's right, that's right. None of my colleagues ever use Google Doc. I just want Laura to know that. <laughs> oh. On the record, anti-Google Doc. So, you know, just for the for the listener who is unaware, um, give us just a 30,000 foot view of what you're talking about at Willow Creek, just so we can get into some of the, the stuff yeah. later, Not not the specifics of that's not what we're here to talk about, but give us the high level view of what, what the situation is. March 18, no, March 23, 2018, a story broke in the Chicago Tribune about allegations against Bill Hybels. We knew the names of the women in the article. Some of them had been family friends for 20 years. The church was saying that the allegations were false. The women who we knew were saying that they were true. And that's the aerial view of how it all started for us. And the women for us were very trustworthy Christian leaders. We knew them well enough to say, this happened. Right. And that changed the whole dynamic. We believed the women from the very beginning. And it manifested a culture of corruption, sexual corruption, sexual abuse, power abuse at Willow Creek. and. You know, there's just one story after another now about these these sides, of, these kinds of corruption. Sad, very sad. Mm-hmm. And it was really for my dad, who had experienced or seen this before. He said the pattern was predictable. But for me, as a lay person, I'm a teacher by day. This was the first time that I had seen a church defend itself against allegations and I, I was I was destabilized, I guess would be a word for understanding how it was it was like a horrific moment when I realized only one side could be telling the truth. And mm-hmm. I believe the women and what Willow Creek is doing is unacceptable. And it's very scary. And like I said, just really disorienting that a church who's supposed to tell the truth and protect those that are vulnerable and have been wounded is going to these lengths to silence the women and silence the truth. Well, I think the first thing I think is you did a beautiful job of making the book not be about the scandal, but about how the church can build itself in a way that that doesn't let that stuff happen, that doesn't let that culture uh, happen. I think you, you really nailed it when it's the culture that allows those kinds of things to happen, it, it, a pastor-centric culture especially. So it was really powerful. Both of us have a little bit of experience with, with I guess, what we would call church abuse in today's language. Um, and, and it just, it, when I when I came to, well, let me tell you how I came to find your book in the first place was the book awards, right? Um, they, they had a list of the finalists and you, and you mm. guys were one of the category finalists. And I decided... I was going to try to read all of those books and I chose yours first because of the title. I was like, what in the world is this about? And I didn't have any idea what the book was about. I bought it and started reading it. And I was just blown away with this story. And of course, all of us had heard about the Willow Creek story, but, but how you chose mercy over ju- judgment and how you chose to write this book. And, and I love it. So tell us about well, Tove. Well, Tove is, um, well, here's what happened. I, 
I had a blog post in which I said, uh, the, our churches need more goodness. And the number of people who responded to me on that, just like it was a resonation for people. And I thought, yeah, that's good. Uh, Protestants are nervous about the word goodness because of Romans 3.10. Uh, there is none good, no, not one. And that's where they get stuck. But the word goodness, good, in the Old Testament, in Hebrew, is tov. And it's used numerous times in the first chapter when God created his tov. And when he had done all his creation, it was tov ma'od, which is very good. But then it becomes a moral category in the Old Testament, that God calls his people to tov. And they are to resist evil, which is ra. So in Genesis 3, we have the tree of good and evil, the knowledge of good and evil, tov and ra. And throughout the Old Testament, the people of Israel is called to a life of tov. Solomon prays for people to be tov. Jesus comes along, and he's using this word because he would have been speaking on a Hebrew dialect called Aramaic. Yeah. And he called his disciples to good works, tov works. The Apostle Paul also would have spoken Hebrew and Aramaic, but uh, wrote in Greek. And he says one of the fruit of the Spirit is goodness, which is tov. So tov is actually, uh, I would call it a master moral category that expresses the design of God for all of creation, including our moral lives, our marital lives, our work lives, you know, everything. We are called to be tov. And it can be translated beautiful. So it's pleasing to the eye in that sense. It's got the right proportion and, and perspective. It can, it, can, uh, it can describe um, excellence. So the person who performs a great piece of music, um, who performs a great act of tennis or golf, or a sermon, or a medical procedure, whatever, good parenting, good swimming, these all would all be used, the word tov would be used for these. So tov is a beautiful little word that gives to us a master category for what churches need to be. Um, and we see this especially because, uh, or when we see churches that are toxic, we say that church should be Tove. And uh, that's sort of a bird's eye view of Tove. It's beautiful. That's just chapter five of your book is all. Yeah, about I didn't say that God is Tove. Uh, I forgot to. God <laughs> is Tove and everything that God does is Tove. You are Tove and all that you do are to, is Tove is in the Psalms. And so when he creates, when he makes us, when he designs us, when he calls us to a kind of life, it's because God himself is Tove. That's the, the one of the passages I had highlighted that I was going to read and get you to talk about. You just did it all by yourself. Yeah. So. Okay. <laughs> you don't even need a moderator to talk about this. I love, I love when writers have their subject matter so deeply ingrained in who they are that it, it's, you don't have to read me your book to, to tell me your story yeah. of that. So, so give us... Um, average church member out there who's looking at their congregation, how do we get a sense of whether we have a healthy culture or a toxic culture in our churches? What are some of the, some of the guardrails we're looking for? I can, from my perspective, accessibility to the pastor, 
when we started attending our little Anglican church, I was, it was, it was such a shocking difference having come from a mega church. And I, I don't have anything against mega churches, but the pastor knowing my name and asking me how my week was spending time with us, the congregation after the service, drinking coffee, talking like one of us. Um, I realized how good that is for the pastor to not consider him or herself more important or too important and has to go backstage after the service or be protected by security, or Mm -hmm. you have to stand in line to meet the person, but he's one of us, he's with us. And for me, that's huge in the difference between total and toxic. Accessibility. I think that's a, a, a good category. Um, it's an interesting category too, because a lot of pastors don't want to be accessible. And then you think, what is pastoring if it's not accessibility? Right. Um, another side for me is uh, narcissism, which breeds a lack of empathy. And another side of it is narcissism that breeds power that is used in a way that makes it creates fear on the part of people who work with them. Uh, That leads to almost always, it does always to a pastor who wants to be a celebrity treated as special rather than anything else. And this is the mark of, of a narcissist is a desire for grandiosity. They want to be the greatest ever. Um, Haven't we heard this in the last four or five years? Um, and this is just um, a striking, uh, a striking shock when we see pastors who are inaccessible, narcissistic, lack empathy, want to be celebrities, and use their power to create fear in other people. This is this is not the way of Jesus. That's not, it's not tove. That's toxic, and we need. That's what I think. That's one of the things. Uh, both Lee and Lisa, that we noticed is these pastors are masters of creating a persona on a platform so that people respond to the persona. And that persona can be just total redemption, total grace, total love. And and people can respond to that, thinking that that's the real person, only discover later that they're not. They've responded to a persona rather than the person themselves. But these narcissistic type leaders are almost indetectable for the average person sitting in the pew. You you have to be a psychologist or a very alert uh, human being to recognize narcissism in a pastor who's preaching what seems to be in a humble state. Mm. Because they're play acting. When they're there and I can speak from the fact that I worked at our church in San Antonio and got to know our pastor really well and saw that he was exactly who he was on Sunday, the rest of the week, the business week while we were, you know, doing the, the quote business of church. And, um, but then we've been to other churches where we saw the exact opposite Mm. And it's terrifying because these are the church should be a place where hurting people go safely. They can go to a safe yeah. place and receive help, healing, and learn about the word of God. Yep. And if you have somebody that it's not only the pastor, 
I would say it's the people he surrounds himself with. The oh, other, yes. The other yeah. staff members who also want to be mm-hmm. kind of a hanger on or go up in the ranks um, while the pastor goes up in the ranks or becomes yeah. more famous. And I have seen where people will shield the pastor from the congregation Mm -hmm. because they want only the access. They don't want to let the people that they're actually the flock that they're pastoring have access. So I've seen both and we've seen together some pretty scary things and the churches never, they don't grow. They don't, they might be big mega churches, but they're not growing. growing They're not right. They're, they're not growing spiritually. what the spiritually we finish finish each other's sentences all the time. So um, I'll just only say the first part and you say the second part. Okay. Um, but no, it's, it is when, and I'm a very intuitive person. So when we um, attended a church in Auburn, Alabama and immediately had red flags mm-hmm. and, you know, yep. it, it could have been really horrible, but thank goodness the leaders of the church also saw it and mm-hmm. were able to at least protect the congregation from getting hurt. Mm-hmm. Um, unlike your story where numerous people were hurt. Yeah. Yeah. Well, my wife's a psychologist, so Chris can sit there and she'll say, it's like, this guy stinks. <laughs> <laughs> and what, you know, she's talking about character. This is... uh this is rot. This is, this is dangerous right here. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, this is one of the, this is, I tell people this all the time. If you're in a search committee, you need some psychologists in that room and fewer lawyers. Mm -hmm. Um, because you have to think about personality because that personality is going to shape so much, the more power they have. And psychologists are trained to see through words into character. And most people simply believe the words of people, That's which right. is a good thing. It's not a bad thing. But um, I, I, Lee, you're a doctor, right? I mean, you listen yep. to patients describe things and you got to think, hmm, that's not quite what's going on here, but yep. maybe they'll maybe they'll tell me. Yep. And um, that's, that's what we need in detecting character in churches. So we think this book could be really helpful for search committees. I, I think you're right. I, it, that's why I sent it to our friend Max Lucchetto is, you know, there's, there's a, um, there's a need for churches to think about the impact of a new hire on the culture that they've established in the previous years. And, and it's, it, it's devastating when your church family falls apart or when you have to make decisions like you did, Laura, you know, your, your friends or your church, right? <laughs> are you going to speak up and, and be part of the culture that resists this? and get hammered for it, or are you going to lose your church? And that, that was brave. I mean, tell us a little bit about that experience that you had and what that was like for you and your husband. It was hard. I'm not going to lie. Um, we, we had actually left Willow Creek before the scandal erupted. So I feel good that I can say we did not leave because of it. We left prior to it for different reasons. Um, much of our church attendance, which I talk about in the book, had become who was on stage and, oh, this speaker is up this weekend and, oh, that person's a little boring, so we're not going to go this weekend. We had become, or I had become consumers. So that was a whole process that we went through. We left 
we left and attended Anglican church and felt like we had returned to attending church for the right purposes. So we're in this little Anglican community and it's, um, kind of a safe haven people I don't I'm assuming that people in the congregation know of Willow Creek but they really don't pay attention to it we were just like I said kind of in a safe little haven when the story broke and um I grew increasingly um I don't know the word for it just really unsettled in my soul and I just I felt like I could not be quiet about it. And I didn't have a platform. I, I'm a like I said, I'm a teacher. I'm a former Willow Creek member. My dad did have a platform though. So I kept pushing him to speak. What really shocked me is the anger that came back at I and my dad didn't really face it head on like I did, but the anger that came back for what we said about Willow Creek. And we were simply asking, in my opinion, it was simple. We were asking Willow Creek to tell the truth because they were damaging the women. They were damaging their reputations. Some of them had lost jobs. Some of them had lost their community. And we were asking Willow Creek to repair what they had broken. And the anger was was palpable. I mean, I, I walked into Willow Creek for a service And I don't even think that I had said much at that point, but it was like, I I liken it to being shunned. Like I, people that we had known for decades would not look at us, my husband or me, they would not talk to us because we had asked Willow Creek to tell the truth publicly. We had asked them to tell the truth. So it was hard, but um, I always felt like it was the right thing to do. Um, but it's been hard because we've lost friendships. People that had been our friends for a long, long time won't talk to us because of what we said. I, I had the advantage. I mean, I've been asked many times, you know, did you get a lot of hostile treatment? I assume I did because this is what happens when you write the things that we did. But I think because my blog is so big I have such a big platform that people are afraid to come at me just in case I go, I go back at them. It goes public. It goes public with them. So um, I didn't get, I know that our, the original blog post just rifled through Willow Creek for a week and everybody was talking about it. And I know some people weren't too happy about it. Yeah. Even one of my students said, I think you were too harsh later, later that student said, I think what you said was right. I just couldn't take it at the time. Um, But uh, this is what happens when you tell the truth. Either you, let's say, you you accuse someone of a truth, of their own complicity in some sin or evil, and they they have two choices, yes or no. If they say no, one of the strategies, the most dominant strategy, is to attack you. Mm-hmm. That's right. So being attacked is part of the game. And we were aware of this from the very beginning. So in the book, uh, when we wrote the book, you know, if some people didn't like it, what what could we expect? Um, we were trying to tell the truth about the women and other people would rather that the truth not be told. 
I love you gave a really good example of the right response of a church to this kind of thing. Um, I can't remember where the pastor was from, but a, a pastor who uh, okay. allegations of a youth minister had come out and didn't even, the pastor wasn't even there when all this stuff had happened. And, and can you can tell that story. That, that's a powerful example of what we ought to do in the face of this kind of thing. Okay. But I, I first have to say yeah. this. I, Laura was finding these stories, and I said, we don't want any stories of anyone alive, because in five years, we may discover they're the same thing. So, <laughs> so I said, we can get dead people like like Mr. Rogers. But yeah. this story Laura had was so compelling, uh, we had to tell it. Yeah, his name is Robert Cunningham. He's a pastor at Tate's Creek Presbyterian Church in Lexington, Kentucky. And like you said, when there was allegations that came to light about a former youth pastor at the church and Cunningham responded with such grace and toveness. Um, I was emotional by the response because it was in the midst of the Willow Creek crisis. And I thought if Willow would have just responded like this, it, it would be a whole different situation. I know Willow Creek would have forgiven and Bill and erupted in grace. And um, it's so sad to me, the juxtaposition of the two situations. But Cunningham hired an outside um firm to investigate. He said, we have nothing to hide. He apologized to the victims. He apologized to the church community. He apologized to the entire community of Lexington. And it was remarkable to me that he owned something that happened when he was not even the senior pastor, but he knew that it damaged people that were still in the congregation and in Lexington itself and he, his compassion and his willingness to open the books, he said, we're going to give this, it was called grace. They were doing the investigating. We're going to give them access to everything and we're going to own whatever they find. We're going to make it public. It's not going to be a secret. And if anyone has any stories, we want you to come forward. We know that you'll be safe. And um, it's still up on his website. Last time I checked, you can still read the report. And he he um, he tweeted such beautiful lines about victims being our prophets now. And in the in the face of the Me Too movement, we need to listen to those that are wounded. And then he said something about, "I still believe those words. I believe them now, even more when this is my own church that we're talking about." Yeah, it's a beautiful story. Yeah, just such a healthy response. Like, hey, I wouldn't hear when this happened, but we're going to get this out and we're going to get it right. And and that was just a, it was really moving. I actually shed some tears when I read that. I know, it me was just too. A, it's just what Jesus would do, right? Jesus would clean out the temple and he would take care of it. And so we appreciate that. Um, I think you got to the root of it, though, um, in the last chapter, when you talked about Tove Church's nurture Christ-likeness. And, and Scott, you talked about this radical change in mindset that's happened in the American church in the last probably century or so, 50 years. Talk about that for a minute. Give us some story there. Well, um, something has gone wrong and um, we have more religiosity, more uh, mega church pastors, more mega churches, more celebrities, and the church has less impact in society. The church is degraded. 
in its reputation. I'm talking about evangelicalism especially. And uh, something has happened in the last 50, 60 years in the perception of a pastor and the perception of a church. Uh, In a sense, the church is a place we go to hear someone preach a sermon. And that's not what a church is. I cannot imagine the Apostle Paul saying, don't come hear me preach. That's not why we're here. We want you to join this new fellowship of people because we're going to transform the Roman Empire. We, we are gathering together as brothers and sisters in Christ, and we're learning to help one another grow. Well, something happened that pastors became celebrities. Pastors became intoxicated with the idea of leadership, that they were leaders. When you fashion yourself as a leader, you fashion everybody else as followers. That's right. So if you're a, a doctor, I'm a patient, Right. That's the, way it, that's the way it works. When you fashion yourself as a leader, you make everybody else followers, and you set yourself apart as above and beyond. When you fashion yourself as a pastor, you are telling people that I am nurturing you in Christ-likeness, and yet you, we are also siblings, so you are nurturing me in Christ-likeness as well. There's an equality that emerges, and something happened, and churches have become explosive in size and money, in buildings, in technological expertise, and screens that look like Hollywood or sports stadiums. And, you know, you can go in one of these big churches after another and never see a cross. Churches in Europe are in the shape of a cross, the old churches. Right. If you fly over them, they, they're a cross. Yeah. And here we have churches that don't even have a cross. And so it, they became theaters like uh, yeah. for performance. And the worship leaders are dressed to the nines and they look like movie stars, and they sing like, I mean, they're good. These people are good, and the preachers are good. But that creates an entire culture that is not what the church is supposed to be. The church is a a family of brothers and sisters who live with one another, who share with one another, and grow. And this is the intoxication of the late 20th century church, and it has, um, I think it has destroyed the credibility of the American church in the eyes of Americans. We recently talked to a missionary who had come back from years overseas, and she told us that she had culture shock when she returned to the American church oh, yeah. because of what, yeah. it, what it had become and the, the stark contrast between that and what she had experienced. It was like 15 years is all. Yeah. 15, 20 years. And well, just couldn't have, believe. When you have a, the very first time I heard it, I thought this is not a good sign. A worship arts pastor. I was like, yeah. what does that even mean? <laughs> Someone who sings and has been on worship team forever. And I thought, what does that mean? A worship arts pastor. And that happened at our church in San Antonio where it became I guess the presentation became very, very important. And then you have the other extreme where people, you know, show up 
in whatever they happen to have on with coffee and a donut. And they're, it's like they're at the movies and, you know, they just don't have the bag of popcorn. And there's <laughs> the in between is this getting back to where you have community because you have to have that community in your church. Right. You have to be involved. You have to have access, like you said, to the pastor, because that's the person there that you're expecting to help you grow. And the same yeah. thing with the elders of the church. The, the The health of a church is so important and has to be, all of the areas have to be healthy. It can't just be one yeah. or it's yeah. not a healthy that's church. Right. That's yeah. right. Good point. Talked, Good point that I think needs to be made here is so we attended a mega church for a long time in the south and and we I have never heard Jesus more clearly or more soundly presented than I had from that pulpit from the senior pastor. So you made it very clear. The things we're talking about here are not to say that you can't find Jesus in these churches, that he's not adequately represented or, or that the preaching isn't solid. It's not that. But when we when we started reading your book and talking about our former church, we started seeing some things like who who are the guest speakers? They're John Maxwell, and the and it's always about leadership, and it's always about how you can develop more followers, and and, and so you you, th- you start looking at things like that, and you see services are you know they have to be one hour, they can't be one hour and two minutes if the Holy Spirit leads us into it. It's got to be an hour, and, and yeah. all these little things, and you start seeing that. Okay, this is a business. And it's a business that's very well run and it points people towards Jesus and it's doing that thing. And I don't know that they, I don't know that they have a toxic culture there. We haven't been there in a long time, but, but those are signs that you need to look at of what's your church, what's the business of your church about? Is it about making Christians and making Christ known and magnified? Or is it about running an organization that is becoming progressively larger? And what you wrote was a leadership culture turns the church into an organization governed by a set of management principles. It turns pastors into leaders whose primary aim is the success of the organization. Willow Creek has a leadership summit. Whatever happened to Bible conferences, you know? Why why don't they get together and have, um, why don't we have this summer uh, 12 speakers about the book of Ephesians? Yeah, revival. Yeah. Um, But it, it was, these conferences are not about the Bible anymore. They're about, I mean, sure, they sugarcoat it with some Bible sometimes, um, and I I don't understand I don't understand that. But I think it's a symptom of a culture. It's the expression of a culture that no longer values the truth of Scripture and the revelation of God in Christ, but success. This is how you get butts in seats, bills in the plate, baptisms in the pool, buildings on the on the grass and the budget is met five B's five B's of the quantitative measures of churches. None of, none of which are holiness and love and justice and grace. So in the eighties and nineties, you, you talked about how leadership had become a craze in the church and it, it was kind of irritating, but the people who were irritated by that lost and this leadership movement, came on and you wrote about it. When they asked you to write an essay about leadership, you wrote about something else instead. Yeah. That sounds yeah. like, yeah. <laughs> yeah. They said they wanted me to write an essay about leadership for some magazine. And I wrote 
um, about followership, that true leaders in the church are followers of Jesus, first and foremost. And we are calling that Jesus is the only leader, and we are following him. Well, I was, that was, I wrote that out of spite, I think. But I think it was a pretty decent essay. I don't have any idea where it is now. Did they publish uh, it? Yeah, yeah, I don't know what it was. It was, I well, remember, your, your, your I remember right point that. that I loved was Jesus never said, hey, come and I'll teach you how to be a leader. He yeah. said, come and follow me. I'll make you fish yeah. in and I'll, I'll help you yeah. save souls. Yeah, yeah, beautiful. that's right. And I, and was, I think, uh, I think when, when we see ourselves as followers of Jesus, it transforms us into treating one another as fellow followers. Mm-hmm. That changes the dynamic. Yeah. Beautiful. I think y'all should write another book, um, and I think it should be about how Christians can live a tov life um, and, and what that would look like if all of us did that. Because if we all did that, the church would follow. Mm-hmm. I mean, the church would become a tov culture without having to re-engineer all of it. So there's your summit, Laura. <laughs> <laughs> we, we have a proposal at, a publish, at our publisher because they wanted two books out of this um um uh, about uh, from toxic to tove in church cultures the principles yeah. of how to change a culture but uh maybe maybe a tove life a tove, a tove life. life that's what i'm getting i like that life. one yeah i the most common question that we've been asked since we published tove is what do we do our church is toxic how do we get it to be tove or there's been a few that we're starting a church how do we make sure it's tove so that's a hard question to answer because I was like, I don't know. <laughs> like, I, you know, I just wrote about my story, but we started to research and learn a lot about cultures and how they're formed and how we can lead them towards toveness instead of toxicity. Well, catch this though, Lee. I have a, I had a class last week with all pastors, 15 of them. And one of the pastors worked on changing a church from toxicity to tove. And I told him what we were working on. I actually, in the last day of class, went through like 10 points. And um, he said, you have to write this book. And I said, why? He said, the only books on this topic are in the business world. There are no books like this in the church world. So we, uh, Laura and I, I've read it. And Laura's reading the principal book on uh, organizational transformation. And um, we can learn from this, but the... uh, the fundamental categories will come from more Bible and theology, but but we're learning from from that book because there's nothing. I mean, the, to go through the transformation, the changing of a culture is not just a religious thing; it is right. it is a cultural thing. So we we need to understand how culture shift and culture changes work. So, so what's in the aftermath of what happened at Willow Creek? Have you seen? Um, are there some good things coming out of this? Like what, what's changed and what's happening? What's the Lord doing up there in Chicago um, after all this has happened? Oh, boy. <laughs> um, you, know, we're, you know, we're, no, I mean, it's fair. Um, you know, we said at the beginning that there are a lot of Tove people at Willow Creek who were hoodwinked and abused and used. And some of them saw through it and couldn't do anything about it. So there were always a lot of Tove people at Willow Creek. And there still are a lot of Tove people. I mean, their attendance is way down. 
Uh, they lost a lot because of the the controversy or the the scandal, but also because of COVID. So we're all yeah. waiting to see what's going on. But they have a new pastor. They've unified um, the vision. All the churches are now one. They they had all these sites that were kind of different. And it, um, I'll be com- completely frank, and that is, we d- we don't know what's going on. They're not telling us, and we won't know until the next chapter of story of that church is written and it will be written by the lives um, and the stories of people who embody the gospel, who embody TOF or who embody toxicity. And it'll take time to know uh, if they're riding the ship or not. I mean, I'm not going to just turn around and say, make Willow Creek great again. That's not going to happen. And we'll just have to see. So I, I, we have no desire for Willow Creek to fail at all. I hope they do great. I really do. Beautiful. So, and Laura wrote a really good article. Not um, beautiful. Tove. Tove. Our word it. is Tove. That's right. I love it. So I've been, I've, as an aside, I've been geeking out on uh, Hebrew and Greek words related to happiness lately because of the book that I'm writing currently. So um, there's this funny word, makarios. Um, yeah. It's the word that's translated in, in the Beatitudes as blessed or blessed a lot of times, but it really means happy. And it's the yeah. same word that we, um, the root of which we get the word macaroni and the macarena and all this fun stuff. And, <laughs> and so I've been spending a lot of time and <laughs> digging into what words mean lately. So we've been talking about Macarios a lot. But Laura, you wrote a really good blog article about the recent um, uh, open meeting at Willow Creek. And I'll post that on the website for anybody interested in, 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 in that. It was a really well done uh, story that you wrote. And I, th- I thank you all for your time today. I just, I guess as we're, as we're wrapping up here, um, we've seen a lot of conversation about some things happening in the Baptist churches, the SBC. Um, and, and there's a lot of, of course, Paige Patterson and, and, and all those things that were happening. And, and do you just have a word maybe of encouragement or how you can call those pastors to, to this idea? Um, maybe give us just a couple thoughts about what's, what's happening there and what people can do about it. Well, um, I'm not a Southern Baptist. I'm as interested in it as anybody else because it's such a massive organization um, and it influences American Christianity uh, immensely. It's the, it's the religion of the South. Yeah. Um, the, the news stories that uh, become viral are always stories of nonsense and Willow Creek, I mean, not Willow Creek, but the Southern Baptist churches have an instinctive capacity to fulfill the media's desire by doing uh, sort of reckless, um, insensitive things. So there's there's just too much of this in their leadership. And right now, they're politi- politically warring over the, the group that should lead, uh, you know, the president who should lead and what he represents. And this guy they consider a, a left-wing Marxist who is probably in any other perspective a right-wing fundamentalist, you know. Uh, and so that's how 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 tense-filled it was. But the Southern Baptist Church is um, facing a lot of challenges as to whether it can become the church that it has been of evangelism and local community service and pastoral capacity teaching the Bible, or will it become a sort of a caricature of itself of 
of a bygone era. Uh, and I think the, I think we're all watching to see how the Southern Baptists um, try to relate to uh, our culture. I think that they could use uh, the top leaders being soaked in tove to adjust their language, to adjust their approaches, their postures. Um, they kind of peacock and strut around at times like they're the the end of the world, the most important people in the world, and uh, they're not. Uh, Jesus is the only one. Is the only one who's important, and everybody else is a follower of Jesus. Mm -hmm. So I I would like to see the Southern Baptist main leaders soaked in tove and transform how they're posturing in the public sphere. Yeah, I just read a really good piece about the other big election and, and the and the person they elected as the new president. They basically have have said we're we're going to get this right. We're going to deal with the um, internal people who have been blocking things and 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 accusing the accusers, and, and we're going to get it right. So it seems like there's some hope that 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 the the idea of of letting God's goodness infiltrate their executive council and all of that. It seems like they're, they're pursuing Jesus there. And I'm encouraged by what I've read in the last few days. About that. I'm, I'm encouraged by what they're saying. Time will tell whether they do the right thing. Absolutely. We'll wait. We'll wait. I'm not, I'm not confident and I'm not cynical. I just want to see just have to what wait. they do. Yeah. yeah. I feel like the the Holy Spirit and the enemy are um, battling it out over over the church right now, mm-hmm. global, and that's what you guys got after uh, in your book. And you've given us such an important tool um, to, on an individual level, how we can seek out goodness, Tove, in our own lives, in our own churches, and our families. And and I really do hope you write that next book. <laughs> I'm gonna write your fan like. I'm oh, Laura fan. does too. Laura's gonna be a pest now. <laughs> You guys got to do it. I'm good <laughs> at pastoring my dad. <laughs> well, I think until you're a Tove person, then that Tove person is the only person that can lead a Tove church. That's right. Um, yeah. And yeah. and grow more Tove people. Yep. So yep. it really does always start with ourselves. I think so many of these people forget they're broken and forget yeah. they're flawed just like all of us and Mm -hmm. um, they hold themselves in high esteem and forget that it's all about loving each other, but loving God first. How, because of this book, actually, uh, we've been talking about possibly looking into attending churches that are outside of our comfort zone or outside of something we ever thought of doing only because I think people, we've gotten so removed from just the hugeness of the fact that we're there worshiping God, like the Mm -hmm. reverence that should be happening. And I don't want it to feel like a movie theater anymore. I wonder how, one, because you, you made some changes based on disappointment and brokenness and, um, wanting to seek out a Tove uh, place where you could worship and other people that felt like you. So how did you come about making the decision to go from the, you know, mega non-denominational church to a small Anglican church? 
we, my husband and I found that we were just not going, we would, we would drag ourselves to Willow Creek on Saturday evenings. And I felt sort of depressed, um, sitting there. I don't even know at the time if I knew what it was. Um, but one big piece for us is that we would, but for me, we would look, I would look at the week because Willow Creek puts out like, who's going to be the speaker, you know, who's singing. And, and I would be like, meh, looks kind of dull or like, it would be like a big Father's Day festival. And I was like, eh, I don't know. And we just continually found ourselves excuses, not going. And then we looked at each other one week. We're like, we need to, we need to commit to a different church. This is not working. And the reason we picked the Anglican church is because my parents went there and we visited periodically when my dad was speaking and our friends asked us, what is it like when we compare? And we said, we, if we were to compare it to Willow Creek, it's the exact opposite. There's no production. There's no screens. Nobody's counting how many people are in attendance. Yeah. There's no, like, there's kids in the middle of the service. And sometimes they get up and dance and they're loud and a baby cry. It's, it's not perfect. And we love it. They also like... You also liked how much scripture is read. But here's here's something, Lisa, that uh, because I teach seminary students and and a lot of students, at least traditionally, have moved from somewhere to come to school. It was common for me. Uh, it is common for me to have students say uh, we're having a hard time finding a church. And I, I always tell them this. I said. Where you know, I ask them where were you in church, etc. How long were you in that church? And then I it leads to this question: How long did you attend before you felt like you were a part of the church? Yeah. And that's when it's it's totally revealing. It takes a long time. Now, here's when you choose a good church, you are trying to find a good family into which you fit. That's right, and that takes time, and the best solution, the best entry is to know someone that you really trust um, and then to know somebody else you really trust who don't know one another and who can confirm that this is a good church. But let's not forget that churches are masters at performance from the platform and they want you to be there and they're trying to sell you every minute they're on that platform. And so you have to get below the surface to find the roots that create the culture. Oh. And it's, it's hard work. You know, the, the part B of that is we've been talking a lot lately. You know, we lost a son back in 2013. And the way we were raised, the, the churches were um, autonomous um, and they, we had this idea that only our little group had it right. And so we were not encouraged. In fact, we were discouraged from reading books that weren't written by members of that community and, and all that sort of thing. And what that produced was we didn't have a, a a guidepost for how to pray when something unfathomable happened in your life. We had this bootstrap sort of theology that didn't have any we didn't have the tools to go out and get the book of common prayer and see how you pray when your kid dies. We didn't have, 
because we weren't supposed to use that stuff. And so we found ourselves kind of increasingly comforted by more liturgical and more formal things because the church for thousands of years has That's has right. worked together to get us through these things, right? That's why I think Tish Harrison Warren's, Warren's book yeah. is so beautiful um, about the prayer in the night. And so you talk a little bit of, you mentioned it, Laura, when you talked about how that formality has kind of given you something that you didn't expect. Well, yeah, there's something um, comforting. I think that was the word you used. I agree with it about the rhythms of the, of the liturgical calendar and knowing that these are prayers that have been prayed for thousands of years by the church and they're being prayed all over the world on this day at this time. Um, I don't think I'll ever go to a church again that doesn't follow the church calendar. The season of Lent has become so meaningful to us. Advent, it's not just about the Christmas, Christmas, right? It's about leading up to Christmas and anticipating Christ coming. Um, We found great meaning in the liturgical rhythm. That's not something I ever thought I would say. But there's, um, let's just, Remember this, that um, uh, there are a lot of corrupted churches that are liturgical and lectionary based. Yeah. So it, it's about the skill of detecting the culture at work in that church. Mm. That's what you're looking for. A Tove culture. I, I think that's a perfect place to leave it. Mm-hmm. That's, you know, the, the book that you've written gives us some ability to hone that skill. And, and so, listener, you need to look at what your church is about. You need to look at what your culture is about, and you need to be more tove. And, and they've given us, uh, Laura and Scott have given us a great set of tools for doing that. We thank you. The forward uh, to the book, too, Tish Harrison Warren wrote beautiful forward to your book. Um, and just as a, I don't know her, but as a, as a plug for her, her book, Prayer in the Night, is also just an exquisite book that came out of life. It is. So uh, tell us that. Uh, we're big fans of her book. And, Okay. Um, so you guys uh, can't thank you enough for taking the time to to be with us today, um, and to and and for the gift that you've given us in writing. Thank you both for being with us today. Any parting shots for us? Last things we left out, or more stuff we want to talk about? Thank you for having us. Thank you. Good to meet you. Yes, I found your book the same way, Doctor Warren. On oh, you did for the Christian Book Awards. I looked and I thought, I want to read these. And yours was the first one. I love memoirs. Thank you. I I think that's cool how, you know, God put all those books on a page and you found my book and I found your book and it led to all this good stuff. So thank you. Yeah, we were reading each other's book at the same time. (laughs) Yeah, we did. We were were together. She tweeted that she was reading my book and I tweeted back, I'm reading yours. Like I sent a (laughs) copy from my Kindle library the same day. That was really funny. Appreciate you guys. And we're keeping our prayers. Um, I know there's still some fallout y'all are dealing with and, and, uh, and we're praying for the church in Chicago and, and uh, just all the things that are going on there. And, and uh, hey, be Tove. You be Tove too. Thank, Thank you. you. God bless y'all. Well, that was a great conversation. Thanks again to Scott and Laura for their time and to Lisa as always. Hey, the world needs a lot more Tove right now, friend, especially in our churches, but also in our homes, our jobs, our schools. We need it. We need Tove. We need to be good. You need to be Tove, my friend. 
and you need to start today. Hey, thanks for listening. Please subscribe to the show so you automatically get every episode. And if you like the show, you'll love my weekly letter. Check out my writing at drleewarren.substack.com, drleewarren.substack.com. Get the free newsletter every week for my best prescriptions for becoming healthier, feeling better, and being happier through the power of faith and neuroscience smashing together via self-brain surgery, drleewarren.substack.com. And if you need prayer, go to the prayer wall at wleewarrenmd.com slash prayer. The theme music for the show is Make Us One by Tommy Walker, graciously provided for free by the great folks over at tommywalkerministries.org. Check it out and consider supporting them, tommywalkerministries.org. Remember, you can't change your life until you change your mind. And the good news is you can start today. I'm Dr. Lee Warren. I'll talk to you soon. God bless you, friend. Have a great day.